Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, a piece-by-piece, episode-by-episode exploration of the winners of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, with hosts Andrew Grenade and David Thurmeyer. Welcome to Hearing the Pulitzers, episode 17, where we're traveling to 1959 and the 16th winner of the Pulitzer Prize in Music, John LaMontagne, for his piano concerto in Time of War, his first piano concerto. I'm Andrew Grenade, glad to welcome you here today to Hearing the Pulitzers. So Dave, what do we know about John LaMontagne? <laughs> we've been waiting for this one. We've, we've been waiting for this, and in fact, John LaMontagne might be the inspiration for Hearing the Pulitzers. If you go back to our when we first, I don't, I think we heard about him because one of our colleagues, former colleagues, talked about how John LaMontagne wrote such wonderful music for flute. That's right. And we were kind of tossing around the idea of a Pulitzer Prize podcast, and we mentioned, oh, we we don't, who are these people? We've never heard of these people like John John LaMontagne. He was the one. And he was the one. Yeah. And so we finally made it. This is kind of a a watershed moment here getting to 1959 the last year of the 50s and then uh, John LaMontagne with his piano concerto so uh, to go back to your initial question what do I know about him what did I know nothing yeah uh, not not a thing uh, it's it's interesting to read about him and you, you, he actually lived quite a long life and didn't die that long ago he was born in 1920 and died in 2013 so quite a long life but in terms of his music nothing how about you have you the same thing it wasn't until we started talking about this podcast and this step-by-step kind of travel through the pulitzers that i even saw his name i had never even seen his name no. and then like you said our former colleague who had experience with lamontaine's flute music so he seems to be one of these characters at least before we started looking him up for this podcast, one of these composers who is very niche, that people who know a certain instrument know that composer and know that composer's music and no one else does. Um, and here's John LaMontagne's person that we had never <laughs> heard about, uh, who made quite a splash in the late 50s, early 60s. So there's about three years there where he is the toast of the town and then just disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Another, I think this is, a, again, a recurring theme that we've seen a lot in these characters is they... They have this moment where they're well-known. I mean, John LaMontagne actually comes from good stock in terms of his pedigree. He's an Eastman. He's from Chicago area. Uh, he was an Eastman grad, studied with Howard Hansen. A Pulitzer Prize and, winner. Yes, another Pulitzer Prize winner, indeed. Uh, studied with Nadia Boulanger and Wagner. Wagner that, oh, at Juilliard, that, absolutely. Yeah, Juilliard. So, you know, he's got a, got a great pedigree, got some good commissions, really well-known for a while, but then just, just faded out. So it's a strange phenomenon. I mean, there's, I think there's something to be said that the fact that we, if you think up to this point in our Pulitzer, we've heard about just, we've heard of just about every composer, I think, except for Douglas Moore and probably John LaMontagne. We'd probably heard Gail Kubik before, heard those names, but uh, this is, this is really unusual and, and kind of a strange phenomenon of just, this this blaze of glory and and as we're going to see you know he had a big uh, commission to write a piece for John F Kennedy yeah. the, for the inauguration so well he had these stuff. connections with all of these Pulitzer winners so he studied with Hansen when he arrived he uh, came to New York City and when he arrived there he actually worked as the assistant conductor for Minotti 
Yeah. So yeah. he's working with on that level. And in fact, I couldn't find the exact, I, I was digging around trying to see, cause he said that he uh, was this assistant conductor for an opera on Broadway and looking at the time, it looks like it must have been the console, the Pulitzer mm. prize winning mm-hmm. opera that we just, we discussed of uh, Minotti. I couldn't find that for sure, but he also was the pianist for Toscanini in Toscanini's final four years with the NBC symphony orchestra. So he was incredibly connected to all of the right people. Yes, and even further, not just Toscanini, then later he's Leontine Price's like house pianist. Yeah, rehearsal pianist. Rehearsal pianist. So he's obviously a great pianist, really great talent there. And you can hear that in the piano writing of this piece when we talk about the, the piece itself. It's very, I'd say, very virtuosic for a lot of the piece. But uh, he's very well connected and, yeah, really in the, the center of it all at that time in the late 50s. And, yeah. Uh, Interesting story. Yeah, well, let's get to it. Let's start talking about telling the story. Telling the story. So La Montaigne, I mean, we talked a little bit about his background. He dabbled in a lot of things. He was in the Navy during World War II. He goes to Paris. He studies with Boulanger. He comes back, studies in Juilliard, uh, works for the NBC Symphony Orchestra. But basically... Boulanger really pushed him to do composition full time because he had about given up and was going to be. He said he was going to be a stockbroker. Took the <laughs> I like state that. licensing exam to be a stockbroker. <laughs> I guess music and math, right? That's what they always say. Yeah, because we, oh, musicians handle money so much. I don't know what's going yeah, on. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> but he later, in a later interview uh, in 2003, he gave an interview and he said. I thought, what can I do that would earn me the most money in the least amount of time so I can stop earning money and just write music? Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. he ended up getting a grant, uh, go on to get Guggenheim Fellowships, Ford, Rockefeller Foundation grants, private commissions, and made his living unusual for even the composers we're talking about with the Pulitzer, made his living completely as a composer. So that's even more intriguing, the fact that he's completely gone. Uh, off the map because a lot of the other composers we talked about had academic jobs like Hanson and Piston and uh, all of them were you know teachers Copeland would flits around Juilliard and teach private people but but Lamontagne was really just a like a freelance professional composer That's who all didn't he have did. a home yeah and yet he's able to to survive and interestingly no uh, reading his obituary which we'll link to in the Washington Post uh, there's no survivors, so no. kind of just an enigma. Uh, this this figure, a solitary figure, one of the first, you know, I guess, well known at the time, individual composer, like freelance composer. Well, he had really early success, just kind of right off the bat. So, 1957 is when he's taking the licensing exam to become a stockbroker. By 59, <laughs> he's winning the Pulitzer. So the year before that, in 58, he gets this commission and he writes this work for Leontine Price the big, huge premiere uh, with the National Orchestra in Washington and then also at the Carnegie uh, Center in uh, New York City. Uh, The next year, he gets this American Music Center Ford Foundation Orchestra Commission to write the piano concerto. It's played by six major orchestras, so enormous success right off the bat. And then uh, President Kennedy's inauguration, 1961. So 1960, the very next year after the premieres of all of the piano of the piano concerto he gets to write overture from c to signing c performed again by the national symphony third year in a row for the kennedy inauguration i mean to go from leotine price 
to this yeah. huge commission that's played by six major orchestras, played by Boston, right, played by New York, played by Washington, National Symphony, National Symphony. Yeah. and then right after that to get the commission for the JFK inauguration. I mean, that's unbelievable. 58, 59, 60. Yeah, yeah. And there's a great picture of, of him with John F. Kennedy uh, kind of talking. It says the president talking to the composer about his overture or some cheesy caption like that. But so clearly, I mean, you don't get to meet the president if you're a complete nobody. So, But if I think uh, of Kennedy and I think of the inauguration and I think of musicians, I think of Copeland. That's true. Yes. Because Copeland... You would think of Copeland. Copeland is already, I mean, his Lincoln portrait got pulled from the 1956 inauguration. Um, mm -hmm. When they opened the Kennedy Center, they commissioned Copeland. That's when he writes he writes connotations. So, connotations, the, so are, yeah. there are all these uh, moments of Copeland, another composer who makes his living <laughs> as a composer. But here also is John LaMontagne. <laughs> we don't know who he is. No. no, it's really amazing. And, of course, the question we're going to deal with today is based on the piano concerto that, is, that won the, the prize. Should we know him more today? Or is, there, is it worth going back and investigating LaMontagne's work? So maybe we should uh, discuss the piece a little bit. Behind the Notes Okay, so this is Opus 9, the piano concerto Opus 9, so it's a pretty early piece. And it has in time of war, so that's always a that's a good way to make your piece sound very serious and meaningful if you <laughs> connect it to World War II. Yeah, exactly. So I, I'm not sure what war we're talking about because this was written after and kind of in between wars. Yeah, I think I read that World he, War II that he was sketched it while he was in World War II. So okay. it was basically his experience in World War II, kind of. Okay. I mean, not literal. But that's the impetus behind the work. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So typical three movement piece, about 25 minutes long, fast, slow, fast. And I wrote down my own influences here. I want to hear what you think about this. But I, I felt it was very uh, Prokofiev, very Russian or Eastern European sounding kind of Prokofiev, Shostakovich, Bartok, Stravinsky, and then maybe some Barber. But it didn't strike me, given his pedigree of studying with Nadia Boulanger or Howard Hansen, it doesn't sound like their music. Or, well, I don't know Nadia Boulanger's music, but it doesn't sound like Hansen, I don't think. Well, it doesn't sound like that generation. So Copeland or Piston, those people right. who go and study with Boulanger and come back to the United States, that kind of Americanness, but neoclassical, it doesn't have mm -hmm. that. And I fully agree with Shostakovich when I was listening to it what kept going through my head is why am I listening to this and not Shostakovich? <laughs> yeah, because there is a yeah. lot of that kind of um, early 20th century Russian sound in mm -hmm. the use of the orchestra and in the percussive use of the piano. I hadn't thought Prokofiev, but I can absolutely, especially that third movement here, Prokofiev yes. all over that. Yeah. So that, that third, third movement is, uh, is fast. It's it, like we said earlier, it's very virtuosic, very rhythmic, lots of mixed meter uh, kind of, it, attractive i think like very in a, in a very aggressive kind of way dissonance but used in a motivic way so i i i think it does fit its time but it maybe not its place it seems to be kind of out of its place yeah i think that's that's really accurate it's also interesting to me that i mean the craft is really evident I, i'll give him that the the opening it, i figured this was a great opening for you with those horns 
blaring out. Da, 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 da. But that little motive in the horn yeah. is the entire first movement. Yep. It permeates. Yep. It is equal to, I mean, not in terms of uh, artistic craft of Beethoven fifth, but that kind of motific unity that Beethoven achieves with the, just the little da-da-da-da, exactly the same thing that La Montaigne is doing here. It is in every instrument. It is in every movement, even. The opening of the third movement has that same little motive. It's everywhere. It's so yes. tightly constructed around that that little um, horn lick. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. This, yeah, the motivic nature of it, a very small range of notes, very kind of tight construction. Uh, I think it's around E for both, which is that seems like a classic sort of a good piano key or E minor-ish, E something modal. Uh, it's got that sound to it. And it, it is very, it, it's crafted in a way, strangely enough, I, I don't really remember anything from the orchestra. I only remember the piano. It's maybe the recording. It was a live, you can hear the premiere actually on YouTube because uh, it was played by, I've seen different pronunciations of it. It's either George Bollet or... Jorge Bollet or John Bollet, as it's written on the program. Right. So, yeah, it's all different names. But One of the great I, pianists I'm, of the mid-century. Yes. Fantastic yeah, pianist. Yeah, Cuban, Cuban pianist. I, I barely remember the orchestra. It seems like such a piano-heavy piece. It is, and it's very difficult. But one of the reasons, yes. and actually this is the clip I wanted to play, was the very beginning of the third movement. Because, A, I think that's the best movement. That's the one yes, that really too, stood too. out to me. I love that movement. Yeah. But the other thing is that you can really hear how expertly, and I think this is what he does probably best next to the kind of motific development, but how he melds sounds into one another. So the piano fades seamlessly into the orchestra, and the orchestra say it fades seamlessly back into the piano. So they are almost as one, as opposed to the idea of a concerto, usually them fighting against each other, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. They're, they're very much one. And so listening to that opening, you'll hear that the orchestra starts, it hands it off the piano, and the piano hands it right back to the orchestra, but you can barely hear when those transitions happen. Let's listen to that. This, well, it really reminds me of the third piano concerto, Prokofiev, or any sort of, like, that kind of rhythmic, limited, motivic palette there, and really just, use, like you said earlier, using the, the piano as a percussive instrument. It really is. Not as a lyrical instrument at all. And it, it also, that, it sounds like the end of Stravinsky's, the, the last movement of Symphony in Three Movements, too, kind of a, also a World War II piece that is very rhythmic and shifting meters and... Uh, very dramatic too. So there, there's some good, really good piano writing. And so there's this really neat gliss uh, later on in the piece that is like, whoa, that's really attractive. So very, very well written, I think. Yeah, the piano writing is just out of this world and out of this world difficult. Yeah. Just listening yeah. to it. I would love, I, now I haven't seen the score, we couldn't get our hands on the score, but just listening to it, the intricacies of what the pianist is trying to do, there's no break. There's no moment which the pianist no. can sit there and go, Ah, oh, listen to the lovely orchestra. You are on. It's. I mean, we think about 
concertos often will start with a big statement by the orchestra. You get the horn lick and that's it. And immediately mm -hmm. the piano comes in and it is piano all the way through. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very, yeah, not much else to say. I think it, it has, a, its materials are pretty clear for the most part. And it, the slow movement, I find my, found myself drifting a little bit. It maybe seems to be a theme of ours. In these <laughs> we mid, don't like the slow century movements. slow movements. They kind of meander a little well, bit. Well, that is but. the most uh, programmatic of the movements because it's an elegy for his sister who had passed away. Um, right. But it doesn't have, I mean, the other movements have rhythmic propulsion, but this doesn't even have harmonic or melodic propulsion. It doesn't seem to be moving anywhere. And so you kind of sit in this kind of modal mixture where you just kind of float mm -hmm. and you're not sure where you're going. So I agree. That's that to me is kind of the low point of the, of the concerto. And then it picks way back up for the third movement. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I found the ending kind of surprising, kind of caught me off guard. I wasn't ready for it to be done either the no. first movement or the second or the third movement. I thought no. both of them just kind of stopped. Mm -hmm. Very abrupt. Maybe that's, there's some war idea or something programmatic in there. I don't know. We'd have to see the score and see what if he included notes. That I mean, that was part of the problem with studying Mr. LaMontagne is there wasn't a lot of material. He's not even in Grove, which I looked up, not even in Grove, and you know, very limited materials. And this piece is just, you can find it on YouTube with, with not much documentation. So uh, maybe the, the full score has more info. So what we did manage to find was the Boston Symphony Orchestra, the premiere they did in 1960. Their program book is fully digitized and you can look at it and it has a description that Mr. LaMontagne provided. But basically all he does in that is he goes and he talks about the first movement, this is what I do step by step, how this second theme is in the flutes. And, and he just kind of goes through and tells you step by step what he was doing. All he says about the second movement is, it's an elegy in memory of the composer's sister, Isabella LaMontagne. And then the finale, he says... That's it? That's it. That's, and all, he, that's all he oh. says. And then the finale, he says, consists of a short introduction by the orchestra, followed by a short cadenza of the piano, and then this march that dominates the entire movement. But nothing else. It Basically, his program note is nothing more than, let me just describe for you what's mm. happening with the major themes. It's all about the craft. Very modernist. Very modernist. Yeah. Hmm. Well... I, I, yeah, okay, that didn't help me very much. No. I was hoping that would be a little more helpful. But in any case, I think you can, at least you, you can figure it out yourself. And it is fairly clear what's going on from the musical elements. So uh, I would be curious to see what our friends at the Pulitzer Prize board had to say. So maybe we should move to our next section. Hit or miss. Time for our favorite part of the podcast here. We get to hear what Chalmers Clifton has to say about this piece. So it was premiered, as we mentioned, by the National Symphony Orchestra in 1958. And let's see here. Uh, the performance had Ravel, uh, Le Tombeau de Couperin for the first part, and then the La Montaigne Piano Concerto. Then at intermission was another Haydn symphony, number 102 in B flat major, and then Rachmaninoff Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini for piano and orchestra. Wow, that's a tough program for Bollet. That's, that's a big very program. Uh, big program for him. So what does the committee have to say? Well, the jury report says, 
After a long and careful consideration, we have unanimously recommended Concerto for or Piano and Orchestra by John LaMontagne. He's a youngish composer. <laughs> okay, so I guess by this time he would be, what, uh, 39? Yeah. And seems to the committee to write with vitality and great promise for the future, and we feel this award will be of a very constructive nature. Mr. Porter, uh, Quincy Porter, was on the committee, feels that there are already signs of true originality in the work of La Montaigne, and that he has the promise of turning out to be one of the few outstanding American composers. The committee feels also that the work has audience appeal. So this is fascinating because so many, yeah, of, what do you the, think of, that? So many of the Pulitzer Prizes that we've seen have basically been career awards. They've not necessarily mm. gone to a composer's best piece, but more... It's your turn. You're a great it's Walter's composer. Walter's turn. Right. Yeah. Have the Pulitzer. Here we see something very different, which is instead of awarding someone whose turn it is, awarding someone who they think has great promise and hoping that the Pulitzer will vault that person to the next level. So then the obvious question is, did it? And the obvious answer is it did not. <laughs> it did not. <laughs> the composer isn't even just... in Grove. But it also shows, I mean, this is one of the founding questions that we had when we started this podcast, if we went back to our first episode, which was, does the Pulitzer actually make any difference? Does winning a prize mm. make a difference in a composer's career? And in this case, we can say it absolutely did not. No. So no. I want to I read you two different uh, interviews that Lawantang gave, and he's in his 70s and 80s when he's giving these interviews. So first from uh, 2003, when he interviewed uh, with um, Franco Terry at the New Music Box, and they were talking about him getting his license as a stockbroker. <laughs> and he says, um, now other things happened. One day, I can remember them now. It was the same day that I got the license. That was the day I got a letter saying I was awarded a Guggenheim Fellowship. Then I got a phone call. They said, I'm so-and-so, and I'd like to speak to you about your prize. And I said, what prize? He said, the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> I said, excuse me, I had just gotten out of the bathtub and I was wet with the phone. <laughs> and I said, excuse me, I have to put pants on. That was about the oh, dumbest no. thing you could say. Well, that was my response to the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> wow. So that's the first thing. And then oh. that's the actual day he got it. And then later in an uh, interview that we found online with Bruce Duffy, he said, um, was asked, what effect did winning the prize have on you? And he said, it sort of stopped me in my tracks for quite a while. I couldn't believe it had happened. And then, of course, the next thing I thought, I've written my best piece and probably my last piece, and I'll never write another one. I had a terrible time putting myself all together after that. I think it did help somewhat to get my works more known, and I can't say they're more widely known even now, but the people that know them a lot seem to know my works. The people that seem to know a lot seem to know my works. I think the Pulitzer Prize helped that, and it also did help me on occasion to get commissions. Well, that's, that is, a I think, a common response to a lot of people who win big awards like that, is it? it's almost, you feel a little bit of imposter syndrome or something, or you just can't get beyond that, like, oh, no, now now what do I do? I've won the, this big prize. How do, where do I go from here? And I think maybe that did, he, he, well, I don't know. On the other hand, I think he just kind of was happy writing his music and just kept doing it. And he was getting commissions. He got was getting played. Yep, yep. So it didn't. Eventually, he got past that block and became well known in the flute world, for example, or all these other right. <laughs> other kind of niche areas. So it seemed like he was happy. Lived a very long life, and yeah, it worked out. Uh, 
that was interesting. I, you want to know, you always want to know the pieces that didn't win. And so this time we have, oh, once again, the Czech composer Bohuslav Martinu. It was a, a piece called The Parables, a score. Uh, I don't know what kind, what piece it is. Maybe it's, it doesn't say what it is, but uh, however, it was felt that a more constructive of award would be to the American-born La Montaigne. And then the third finalist was Wuthering Heights by Carlisle Floyd. So another opera would have made the or, you know, third, but what, the fourth opera, fifth opera? I think the, the fifth 50s? opera of the 50s, yeah. yeah. yeah so What's fascinating is that actually, um, and Carlisle Floyd, those that actually gets performed, unlike yes. the La Montaigne. So if we look at the three who were there, La Montaigne, of those three, is the very least known of those composers. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So in this case, like you said, we can say the Pulitzer Prize did not help bring him and catapult him into fame. It sort of went the opposite way in a weird, weird way. Well, I think the critical consensus, if we look at the, the reviews from the time, basically said the same thing that the Pulitzer board was saying, is that there's some originality here and there's some promise here. So um, the review for the premiere at the National Symphony by Irving Lowen said, I do not mean to imply this is a great masterpiece. <laughs> Just <laughs> damning with faint praise, which is our praise. favorite kind of... <laughs> a critical review that we've been finding. As one might reasonably expect from a work marked Opus 9, there's a certain amount of ineffective writing. The remarkable thing about the concerto is that it contains so much that is genuinely imaginative. This is the product of a talent worth keeping an eye on in the future. Hmm. So basically the same thing that we saw with the Pulitzer board, that it's a solid work, it's original, it has some growth to do, but we should award this composer and help kind of vault them to the next level. Mm -hmm. So what would you say if you were writing your review? Where do you stand? Hit or miss? Yeah. Well, I, I, was, I would say I'm kind of pleasantly surprised. I would probably give this a qualified hit. Uh, I would say that I liked listening to it. It wasn't one I was dreading or you know, I listened to it a few times and I, I enjoyed each time I listened to it. So I think it made me also wonder about piano concertos or piano rep in the 20th century, uh, because, uh, for example, recently John Adams had a piano concerto that Jeremy Denk premiered, but it was supposedly you know, didn't get much traction. Thomas Otis has a piano concerto. So there's some big piano concertos by well-known composers, but can you name any others in the last, apart from Barber, which we'll get to in one of our later episodes, uh, not a lot of piano concertos. And it's, it's, They're not it named... Like there's, they're not named yeah. concertos now. Maybe that's okay. I, okay. I think mainly what I've seen is, you know, big works for piano and orchestra, but they're not named yeah. concerto. I think that the idea of a concerto has kind of fallen out of favor. That's a good point. Okay. Okay. Sort of like you don't, so, hear, you don't hear many symphonies anymore. No. Uh, composers yeah. write orchestral music, but symphonic works are an actual labeled symphony number one. That, that doesn't happen as much. No, not no. like in this time period especially the Pulitzer, which seemed to award composers who were writing works that would fall comfortably in those European genres. Mm -hmm. So if I'm giving it a qualified hit, what are you going to give it? I'll give it a qualified hit. It's a, if I only had the third movement, it would be a hit. Yes. <laughs> because and the first part of the first movement, maybe? Yeah, I mean, the first movement I listened to, I was like, okay, that's fine. Um, second movement, I, mm. I was wondering why this won. And then the third movement grabbed me. I thought, this is why it won. It was the third movement. Yeah. So yeah, qualified yeah. hit. Like you, I 
because I had no expectations going in, <laughs> I didn't know him. I didn't know his music. And the first thing I try to always do with these is just listen to the piece of music to get an idea and then start doing the digging and then come back to the music again. The first time I listened to it, I was pleasantly surprised. Mm-hmm. Well, I think we're in agreement on that. So maybe the next time if we ever, one of our colleagues or one of our students has a recital and we see a work by John LaMontagne on it, we will be happy to listen to it, I think. I, I would certainly be interested in hearing more. Well, that's it for this episode of Hearing the Pulitzers. As always, you can find more about this project at our website, hearingthepulitzers.com, where you'll also find links and a short bibliography where you can read more about John LaMontagne. We'll be sure to put that picture of La Montaigne and the yes, president. Yes, JFK. Yeah. <laughs> you can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at H Pulitzers for links between episodes. And then finally, join us next episode. We'll be exploring our first winner of the 1960s, Elliot Carter, the first of three wins for Elliot Carter for his second string quartet. Until then, keep listening. Thank you.